Hey, this is David Merrill, pastor of the Well Church. I would like to first thank you for downloading the app and listening to what God is doing through the life and ministry of the Well Church. I would also ask that before you listen to this message, that you would pray that God not only continues to transform lives through this ministry, but also that as you hear the Word of God proclaimed, pray that the Holy Spirit will convict you in areas that your life has not been given over to God, empower you to repent and turn, but also embolden you to be doers of the Word and not simply hearers, in order that you become a light in your homes, in your schools, in your workplaces, and even in your local church body. Let us be radically in love with Jesus and radically in love with his people. Once again, I just thank you for listening, and may God bless you abundantly. This week, we are preaching on the end times. We're going to be going through a sermon series on the end times, and it's going to be a five-week series. It's going to be, today, I want to get a broad picture of the end times. And then next week, we're going to talk about the rapture of the church. The week after that, we're going to talk about the Antichrist and the seven-year tribulation period. And then we're going to talk about the millennial kingdom, where Jesus literally reigns on his throne for a thousand years. And then we're going to talk about the new heaven and new earth. And so I just found this appropriate because I'll tell you, every conversation I've had for the past two months has ended up in this. And I don't know if it's just because I bring it up, but it's... It's, this is where it goes, okay? So it's end time. I was actually, there was a guy running around the lake. He was, he was like, oh, I haven't seen this guy in forever. And he, he's running, and he, he stops. And, oh, hey, David, how you doing? I said, like, well, let me tell you about Jesus coming back. And, and so we had this hour-long conversation about the end times. And it was just, but there's something, because you look at the world today, and what we see is, you know, you got the coronavirus, and you got the, 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 the mandatory mask. So it looks like this crazy war scene where there's, there's protests and violence going on everywhere, and then everybody's afraid of this mandatory vaccine supposedly supposed to happen, and, and the cashless society is supposed to happen, and all of these different pieces are playing. And then you start to see the darkness of our corruption of, in the government, in the churches, being exposed. Like, it's starting to come out, this pedophilia ring that is being exposed all over the place, and the darkness of sin even in the church and so what people are starting to do what i'm noticing is christians are starting to look at this and saying man something is going i've heard this over and over and over again christians coming to me and saying something in my spirit is saying there's something going on Something is going on. Something in my spirit is I've lived and I've heard this testimony. I've been living a lukewarm kind of just coasting Coasting through life, coasting in my, in my job, getting up, doing my nine to five, you know, watching my, my Netflix and just chilling and, and Instagramming and tweeting and twiddling and, and, and all the, the things, TikToking, whatever you want to, the verb for TikToking. Um, all of these things, we're just coasting through our existence and then all of a sudden it's like shaking it out. And it's like I was woken up. And there's something more to this. And I've seen, I've talked to unbelievers. Unbelievers, like, you start seeing the darkness of the world. And I'll tell you, one of Satan's greatest tools in, in, his, in his tool book is to keep people numb by not showing his butt. Because when people start to see darkness, they start to see maybe there's something to the light. And what I'm starting to see with non-believers is questioning what, maybe there is something to this Jesus guy. Maybe I heard back when I was in kindergarten 
there is a, a, uh, an antichrist, a one-world government, a one-world power. And so I want to start looking at this because I believe Christians, we need to know the answers. We need to have the answers. Now, we're not going to have all the answers, but we need to have answers. But not just little factoids to, of the end times, but we need to have the answers of the gospel of Jesus Christ as the world is starting to notice that there is something going on. So this morning, I'm going to lay down the foundation. We're going to get an overview of end times eschatology is what they call it okay eschatology is it's theology of the end times it's just talking about how we come to an end how all this takes place and so while we do we got to remember one of the biggest things as far as eschatology or prophecy one of the biggest arguments that we have is that i get commands i understand parables i understand even the psalms but we can't understand prophecy it's too complicated it's too crazy. They got all these symbols and analogies and allegories, all this crazy stuff. So we can't understand prophecy, but we can understand. I get do not murder. That's pretty simple, but we can't understand. And so what I want to kind of show us this morning is that even in Scripture, all Scripture is God-breathed, which means that it's profitable for you, for equipping you for every good work, which means that prophecy can be understood, is meant to be understood, that God has not given us the word of God to confuse you. All right, like it's not like the old school. Some of y'all remember this. I, I'm too young, but they, when they used to have the, uh, the little commercials on the radio and you, they gave you a decipher key. You know, remember uh, Christmas story, the little kid, you know, he's playing. The, that's what we feel like the Bible is. It's like God gives you the, the Bible and we need a decipher key. It's like, where's my decipher key? So I become your decipher key. Like David will decipher it for me. I, don't, I can't understand it. But the Bible was not, it was supposed to be given into the hands of the saints, of the believers, the priesthood of all believers, so that we can understand it. But with that being said, Paul says this in 2 Timothy, talking to Timothy. He says, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed. Listen to this right here. Rightly handling the word of truth. So Paul says, that you need to do your best to take the word of God and rightly handle it. To rightly is to understand this is the very breath of God, the living, breathing word of God. Rightly handle it. Did you know there's a wrong way and a right way to read the Bible? Did you know that? A lot of people don't hear that very often. Like, it's just, just read the Bible. And I say it all the time, read the Bible, read the Bible. But there is actually a right way and a wrong way to read the Bible. We did a sermon series on hermeneutics uh, a long time ago. Um, we did a sermon series on hermeneutics, and in the hermeneutics, we had two terms. We had eisegesis and exegesis, okay? Two but biblical, not biblical, but Bible hermeneutical terms. Big words. Basically, what this means is that most, most Christians, and especially in the West, we read the Bible eisegetically. That's how we read the Bible, eisegetically. We, and what that is is that we have an opinion we have a worldview. We have an idea. And so what we do is we go to the Bible to be a pretext to support our view, to support our ideas, to support what we want. This is very big in the millennial generation of Instagram because all I got to do is I want to be a Christian and have an, I want to talk about love or I want to make a point on my account. And so I Google Bible verses and I place that Bible. Oh, that one looks nice. That supports what I want. And I place it onto my Instagram account or with the, the Bible of the app, the day, app day, the Bible verse of the day. You just read it and it doesn't give you anything just but the Bible verse of the day and say, that's my Bible verse of the day. Do we understand that this is the only book or thing that we ever do? I mean, that we, we do this with? Like, how many of y'all ever were 
40 minutes late to a movie in a movie theater and said, nah, it's okay, I'll figure it out, I'll walk in. Like, 40 minutes late, I'll, I'll still pay my 20 bucks and I'll figure it out after five minutes. Like, no, nobody does, nobody walk in a movie and three seconds in, I got it, I understand the movie. You don't get a novel and just, I get it. I understand what they're saying, I get the author. <laughs> That's what we do with the Bible. It's like, the Bible, we open it up, the Lord is my shepherd, I get it, I understand what he's saying. And so eisegetically, as I have an opinion, I have a view, I'm going to go to the Bible and support my view. You could support any view you want that way. But the way that we studied in hermeneutics, in hermeneutics we want to do exegesis. Exegesis is the, the study that I'm going to extract what the Bible says. So my goal is not to understand the Bible to mean what I want it to mean. My goal is just to understand what the Bible says. Is to understand truth. So I just read the Bible. Now, if you learn anything, uh, if you don't learn anything else, learn this. And this is going to put you far beyond anybody or most people who read the Bible. Okay? Write this down. I forgot. There's a little note. Savannah left papers over there for notebooks. There's going to be a lot of notes happening this morning. Remember this. Context is king. You learn nothing else. Learn that. Context is king. If you learn to read the Bible in context... You are far beyond most people who open that book. So if you get to a verse and you're like, I don't understand what this verse means, or I read this verse, I love this verse, just take the, the previous chapter and the chapter after. Sometimes you might go farther, read it in the context, and you're going to figure out what God's saying to you. And so context is king, but another aspect of hermeneutics, and this is where we're going to land with our sermon, is something called the literal interpretation method. Okay? When I was in college, my, my professors used to get on to me all the time, and they used to say, David, listen to me. This is the, the quote they used to pound on me. If the literal sense makes sense, seek no other sense. Okay? Well, because when I'm reading the Bible, like, you know, when you're a college student, you want to be the, the, the scholar that finds the hidden rock. You know? So when you're reading the Bible, like, you want to find the hidden meaning under everything, the, the spiritualized meaning of all the verses. Like, I want to get deeper. Yeah, I know it says don't murder. But what is really Jesus really saying? Don't, you know, don't murder. What is that in the Greek or the French? The Medea. And so it's just like, you know, what does that really mean? And so we try to find underneath the rock the spiritualized meaning. And if the literal sense says do not murder, and that makes sense, then seek no other sense. Do not murder. You know, I love what my dad used to say when he, he was first jumping into this, uh, into Christianity, really reading the Bible, him and, him and a buddy. And uh, they were getting all this information about what this verse meant, what this verse meant, what this verse meant. And he, said, he came to the conclusion, they came to this conclusion, said, look, as far as, from this point forward until God says otherwise, Eve ate the dang apple. He didn't say dang, he said something else. But that, that is what my dad said. And I love that because as long, or he didn't say apple, he said fruit. It's what the literal sense, what Bible says, Eve ate the fruit. Why are we getting into all this? The literal sense makes sense, seek no other sense. And I bring that up because when we come to prophecy, we get weird with our way of studying the Bible. It's like we have proper hermeneutics of, yeah, that makes sense, that makes sense. But when we get to prophecy, we get all kind of confused, spiritualized, looking for the hidden meaning and everything. And yes, I get it. There's symbolism, there's analogies, there's allegories. And we read that even in the proper context, we understand what it's saying literally. And so there are three aspects, there are three type of eschatologies, theologies that have come out in, around this end time event thing. So there's post-millennialists. Okay, post-millennialist. This is 
a people who they, they, they've read the Bible and they have interpreted it by using over-spiritualization, hidden meanings, secret meanings. And what they've come to the conclusion is that the seven-year tribulation has already taken place during Roman, Rome time. And right now, we are in the season of the millennial kingdom, per se, that we are actually called to usher in as the church to live and get better and stronger, to better the world over, and the world's going to get better and better and better and better and better and better until Jesus comes back. That's their belief system, is that post-millennialist. There's a, there's that, that is we are ushering. And there's some popular churches that push this theology. Bethel in Redding, California, pushed this theology. And when I read scripture, I see nowhere that the world is going to get better and better and better and better. It doesn't happen. It's not in the book. You know, and, it, and even if it wasn't in the book, I'm just, I, just, I, have, I have eyes, okay? I have eyes. And in, in the past 10 years, it's not getting better and better and better and better, okay? But so then there's eschatology, there's post-millennials, then there is amillennials. They don't see amillennials, they go spiritualization. They believe that Israel, God's done with Israel. The chapter's over, done. The church is now the spiritual Israel, and there's no literal 1,000-year reign of Jesus Christ, that he is not going to literally come down, that the world's going to get worse and worse and worse, and then all of a sudden, Jesus comes down, judges the wicked, rewards the righteous, and that's the end. No literal 1,000 years. So that's amillennialist. Once again, they read in, spiritualize, hidden meaning, secrets. But then you have premillennialist. And that's where I stand. This is where we're going to teach from. Now, if you don't agree with me, sorry. Pre-millennial. See, this is, this is where we have the literal seven years of, of, of Antichrist, the rule of the one world government coming, where literally Jesus will come down, come back, destroy the kingdom of the Antichrist, bound him for a literal thousand years, while he literally sits on the throne of David, for a thousand years, and after that thousand years, the end, all Hades and uh, destruction will be thrown into the lake of fire, and for, for all eternity, Jesus will be king. That's what I believe. Why do I believe that? Because that's what the Bible says. That's what it literally says. And so we're going to take this literal method, and so we have an option. We could either read prophecy and understand it through proper hermeneutics, or we could get all crazy with it and over-spiritualized with it. And so what we're going to study this morning is that we can actually trust the Word of God as the Word of God speaks. And so we understand this. we got to understand the greater picture. Let's think, for instance, the Abrahamic covenant. Okay, Abraham. God gives a covenant with Abraham. He promises them some things. He promises them land. He says, you're going to have land as far as the great river in Egypt to all the way to the great river Euphrates. Now, let me ask you a question. When has God's people fully possessed that land? Never. never. They've never fully possessed the land that God's promised them. Now, was God just kidding? God's like, I was just kidding. You know, I was rounding about, okay? I said it all, but I want you to have, you know, it's kind of like when I say there's 100 acres. I really meant there's like 900 acres or 1,000 acres. I meant 900 acres. No, God, God either promised fully or he didn't. When God said to David, hey, Samuel goes to David and says, I want, David's like, I want to build God. I'm living in this mansion, and God's living in a little mobile shack. I want to build God a temple. And Samuel says, okay, God says that it is not your turn because you have too much blood on your hands. Your son will build my temple, but because you were faithful, I'm going to give you something greater. Your kingdom will never end. Through your lineage, through your kingdom, through your throne will come the Messiah who will be born, who will come and sit on the throne forever and ever. Your kingdom will never end. That's the promise to David. Let me ask you this question. When has that happened? 
Was God literally saying the kingdom? Or was he, you know, because remember, the disciples believed it. They read the Bible and they said, okay, this says the Messiah is going to rule in the kingship forever and ever. And so they go to Jesus and say, Jesus, is it time? Like, like we, is, you're the Messiah. You resurrected. Your, is it time for you to now take over the throne? And what does Jesus say? You idiots. You fools. You, you took that serious? You took that literal? Like, I mean, I'm going to sit on your heart, okay? Like, I'm going to be the kingship of your heart. I'm going to just place my life. My kingship will be everlasting in the spiritualized sense. No, that's not what Jesus says. He says, look, good, good idea. Not yet. Time is not yet, and the time you will not know. But it's coming. So that literal translation, we can understand prophecy. So let's get into this prophecy. Let's get into end times with that, with that in mind. Now, there's something we got to understand first. We have three groups in the Bible that are, that are recognized. God recognizes three groups of people, period. Okay, three groups only. There's the Jewish, the nation of Israel. There is the church. And there are the Gentiles. Okay, well, what about the Islam? God doesn't recognize them. They are part of the Gentiles. What about Buddhists? Gentiles. God recognizes three groups. The Jewish people, and Paul says this in 1 Timothy, the Jew, the, uh, 1 uh, Corinthians, the Jews, the church, and the Gentiles. We do not cross them over. And see, one of, a lot of times when we read prophecy, we try to put all these different people together and blend them in this bundle mess and try to read every prophecy with all of them in mind. But most of the prophecies have a specific group in mind. And when we separate them and do our due diligence in separating them faithfully, all of these prophecies start to make sense, literally. So with that in mind, let's turn to Daniel chapter 2. Okay? Daniel chapter 2. Now, in Daniel chapter 2, what's happening is King Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. He doesn't remember the dream, but he wants the interpretation of the dream. So he goes through his magi. These are the sorcerers. Daniel is part of them, the dream interpreters. In fact, Daniel becomes one of the, the leaders of the Magi. They were actually the wise men that came to Jesus in the birth narrative, the wise men, the Magi. This is where they started. This is them. Daniel had influence. So I could preach a whole sermon on how that's cool how Daniel influenced the Magi that came to Jesus' birth. But anyways, what was I saying? Magi, okay. Nebuchadnezzar goes to Magi and he says, hey, I got something for you. I want you to interpret my dream. But I'm not going to tell you what my dream is. So you got to tell me my dream and then interpret my dream. Now, it's okay if you don't, but I'm going to cut your head off. Okay? That was Nebuchadnezzar. I would chop your head off. So they go to Daniel. Daniel hears about this. His head's on the line. He goes to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and says, bro, we got to pray that God gives us the interpretation or else our heads are gone. And so they pray. God gives them the interp they first the dream and then the interpretation. So this is the dream. Daniel chapter 2, verse 31. It says, you saw, O king. And behold, a great image, the image, the mighty, and uh, the image, or this image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of the image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partially of iron, the partially of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hands, and it stuck this, and it struck the image on its feet of the iron and clay and broke them into pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were together were broken into pieces, and they became like chaff of the summer threshing floor. Chaff is like 
peanut shell things. It just floats. Anyway, um, the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. So this is the dream. And Daniel says, this is your dream. And Nebuchadnezzar's like, good. One for one. All right? You got the dream. Now I want to hear the interpretation. Now listen to me. This is where we got to remember. This interpretation, this prophecy is not for the church. This is not for the Jews, the nation of Israel. This is for the people, the Gentile empires. This is their prophecy. You're not in it. Okay? So don't get excited. You're not in this. The church is not in this. The Jews are not in this. This is the Gentile prophecy of their end time prophecy. This is how they come to an end. So Daniel goes on into this prophecy and he interprets it. And he, he has this image that he starts to look at. So this is the Nebuchadnezzar image. This is the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had. And so Daniel says to them in, in chapter 2, verse 36, he says, You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power and the might and the glory and into those whose hand he has given wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all. You are the head of gold, verse 39, and another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze shall rule over the earth. So Daniel says, okay, now we have this dream. We have this statue. And on the statue, there's this head of gold. And in, in talking to Nebuchadnezzar, you are the head of gold. That had to puff his ego up, right? You're the head. You're the gold head, okay? Awesome. But here's the problem. After you, there's going to come another one, another empire, the, 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 the Persian empire. Then after you, we know that to be Persian. After you is going to come another empire. We know that to be the Grecian empire, the Greek empire. And so Daniel's saying, these are the empires of the pagan world. These are the pagan world powers. There's going to be the Babylonian, the Persians, and the Grecians. And then he goes on to the fourth empire. He says, in another, he says, but there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these things. So there's going to come a fourth kingdom. This one's going to be different. It's going to be made of iron. It's going to be powerful. Everything it comes in contact with, it conquers. It's strong. It is going to overcome. It is going to destroy. It's going to demolish anybody that comes against it. What's this empire? Rome. It's up there, guys. Come on. <laughs> Couldn't make it easier. The Roman Empire. And it comes in and it just swoops and everything it touches, it, 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 it overcomes, it, it, it takes over all, conquers all. The strong iron empire comes in. Here's the thing. Once the Roman Empire is over, verse 42, it says this. And as you saw the feet of and toes, partially of pottery clay and partially of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. But some, with some of the firmness of iron shall be in it. Just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay, and as the toes of the feet were partially iron and partially clay, so the kingdom shall be partially strong and partially brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage. 
They will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set a, up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to one another to another people. It shall break into pieces all the kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever, just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke into pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and the interpretation is true. Daniel says that there's going to come another kingdom after Rome. There's going to be a feat, the feat kingdom. This kingdom is going to be of many, many nations. It's, it's going to be, have the heart of Rome, the strength of Rome. And I'll tell you, every world power has tried to recreate Rome. Hitler wanted the Mediterranean Sea to be his pond. He, that's the goal, was to recreate that strong, that strength, that world-dominating empire. And it's going to be made up of many nations coming to one power, one government, one control. Because that's why when we start to look at the world today and they start talking about globalism, they start talking about cashless society, they start talking about we need to be one, the new world order, with an, with an apostate church, apostate religion, we start to look at this and that's why we start to say, okay, the feet are coming. The feet are coming. The, 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 and hear this, this is, once again, this is the, the prophecy for the Greek empires. This is not church. This is not us. So if I had to place the church on this statue, remember the, the church is a mystery made not, that has not yet been made known. That's what Paul says. It's a mystery that the Old, uh, Old Testament prophets did not know. But if I was going to place the church somewhere between Rome and the one world government, I'd say we're right about here on the ankles. So the church is right there. We're, we're in there. But see, they didn't see that. This is not a prophecy about us. This is a prophecy about how they come to an end. These are the world powers. But what does it say? How does it come to an end? There's going to be a stone that no man carved, no human hand carved. It's going to come and it's going to crush the feet, the one world government, the one world power. It's going to destroy it. And then all the world empires from the head to the chest to the, the waist to the knees are going to come crumbling down. And every man-made empire, world religion, world anything is going to crush like chaff and be blown away. Out of this rock that comes and destroys the feet is going to grow this mountain. What is this mountain? This is the 1,000 literal years of reign of Jesus Christ. That Jesus is going to come, destroy the one world government, and set up a kingdom. It's right here. Literal prophecy. And this is reiterated in Revelation. So this is how it comes to an end for the Gentiles. This is their, their story. But then we get to the next story, and this is the story of Israel. Next week, we're going to talk about the story of the church. This is the story of Israel. What is their prophecy? What is their timeline? It's a 70-week prophecy. Okay? So Daniel has the 70-week prophecy. I think I was crying. Are you, are you with me? Yep. Okay. Kind of. Hey, there you go. Just making sure you knew where we was because I was like, where we was. What was that? Where I was. Where we were. Where, where, where we was. Um, some of y'all didn't even catch that. That's how bad it was. All right. <laughs> no. Um, 
70-week prophecy. This is the prophecy of Daniel that God has decreed 70 weeks to. This is a very important prophecy because here, no other prophetic verse does a better job of showing us that we could actually take the word of God literally than the Daniel prophecy in Daniel chapter 9. So if you have your Bibles, fast forward to Daniel chapter 9. This prophecy is so important. Daniel chapter 9, verse 24. Remember, this is Israel's promise. This is not the church. It's not the Gentiles. This is Israel. Seventy weeks are determined for your people. Who are your people? Israel. Seventy weeks are determined for Israel and for, whole, and for the holy city. What's the holy city? Jerusalem. Jerusalem. To finish the transgressions to make an end of sins, to make a reconciliation for iniquity, to bring an everlasting righteousness. This is talking about the kingdom, right? So he's describing the kingdom. This is the final kingdom to seal up the vision of prophecies, to anoint the most holy. Who's the most, the most holy? That is the coming Messiah. So Daniel literally just says that you have 70 weeks between, of Israel's prophecy left. At the end of 70 weeks, there's this finality that's taking place. The wording here, he's saying, you know, this, the reconciliation of iniquity, the end of transgressions, the making an end of sin, the bringing an everlasting covenant, the, the sealing up of prophecy, the anointing of the most holy, all final language here. So this, at the end of 70 weeks, Israel is done. Their prophecy is done. Their prophetic, their eschatology is done. 70 weeks for Israel. This is huge. Because this means if we can do literal interpretation method, we can know what Israel's plan is, right? 70 weeks. This is where it gets fun. We have this up here. Let me, let me put a picture up here. Okay, so that's the timeline. That's what we got. We're going to break this down. Now, I didn't come up with this theology, okay? This is something that's been known for a long time. I can just read, and I'm going to try to explain this as much as I can, as best as I can in the short amount of time as I can. So let's put it up on the screen. We have 70 weeks. Next, next slide. 70 weeks. Okay. That's where we are. We have 70 weeks. Now, we've got to understand something about weeks. Weeks, the, 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 the term weeks can be literally seven weeks, a week like we know it, seven days. All a week is is a period of seven, okay? That's all it is. It's a period of seven. So, like, I could say I have, uh, you know, if I say you have a, because we can't say a week is a period of seven days, right? Seven days. If I say 12 or a dozen, what is a dozen? 12 what? Whatever. It's 12 something. 12 eggs, 12 shirts, 12 cars, 12 pants. 12. Weeks works the same way. Seven. It's a period of seven. And in fact, in the Hebrew, they use this all the time in, as a period of seven. Now, Daniel, once again, contextualized, understanding the context of Daniel, what he uses. Daniel uses this phrase, weeks, as a period of seven years. Okay? So we're at a period of seven years. Which means that now we've got 70 weeks or 70 periods of seven, which seven times seven is 490 years. You have 490 years left of Israel's history. Okay? So now that means if we can understand when this began, then we can understand when it ends, right? Okay, do we know when it began? Yes, we do. We do, because the next verse, verse 25, it says, here's when it begins. Know therefore and understand that from the going, uh, from the go, uh, going forth to the, of the command to restore and build Jerusalem. So Daniel sees that from the going forth of the building of the kingdom, or the, of Jerusalem, 
That's when it begins. That's when the 490 years begin. Do we know when that happens? Yes, we do. Nehemiah chapter 2 says that they, uh, Artaxerxes sends out a decree in the month of Nisan. Now, historians believe and understand uh, that the month of Nisan begins on March 14th, 440, not the month, but March 14th, and it's in the year 445 B.C. There's our starting point, and this is well recognized by most scholars, by most theologians, and by most, a lot of atheist um, biblical scholars. So March 14th, that is the starting point of the decree of Artaxerxes to go back to rebuild the temple. So now we've got some work to do. We've got March 14th. We've got a starting date. We've got 490 years as the decree for Israel's prophetic history. So now the next thing we've got to understand is that the Hebrew calendar year was not 365 days. The Hebrew calendar year was 360 days. We know this by looking at Genesis, chapter, uh, all throughout Genesis, three different verses of comparing them, that they use a Hebrew calendar of 360 days, not 365 days. Okay, so then we know the starting date. So we should figure this out, right? This is where it gets good, y'all. Stay with me. Let's break, let's break it down. Let's read a verse again, verse 425, uh, that from the going forth, of the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince. Listen to this. There shall be seven weeks, that's 49 years, and 62 weeks, that's 434 years, right? That's 69 weeks of the 70 weeks. 69 weeks of the 70 weeks, 483 years that it will take when the moment that the prince, the Messiah will be crowned or acknowledged as king or prince. 69 years. We're missing a week. But stay with me. 69 weeks. 483 years. From the time Artaxerxes and uh, March 14th, 445 B.C. There's a man by the name of Sir Robertson Anderson. He wrote a book called The Coming Prince in the 1800s, and he's devoted his life to the study of this. And so he took all of these numbers. He took the calendar year. He took the starting date. He took all the he, math, he, he, and he came up with this date, April 6th, 32 A.D. 32 A.D. What happened in April 6th, 32 A.D.? Most scholars, most people understand this to be the exact day, the exact day that Jesus rode in on a donkey into Jerusalem. What happened when Jesus rode in on a donkey in Jerusalem? Mark chapter 11, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom of our father David that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is the kingdom of our father David. Why are they screaming, blessed is the kingdom of our father David? Because the king of that reigns on the kingdom of David forever has come and been crowned the prince on the exact day, 483 years since the decree of Artaxerxes, Jesus rides into Jerusalem as the prince of Peace as the one that Daniel prophesied about. We can take the Bible literally. God has promised this. And then what happens after the the crowning king? What happens after they declare him the prince, the king of David? What happens? Daniel says this. 
The street shall be built again and the wall, even in troubled times. And after 62 weeks, so after the 62 weeks, so seven weeks and then the 62 weeks, which Messiah shall be cut off. Not for, him, not for himself, but for the people. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with the flood until the end of war, uh, until the end of the war of desolation are determined. So Jesus says, or Daniel says, that 89 or 69 weeks after the 80 or 32 year weeks, right? 32 weeks. Yeah. Anyways, after the 69 years, Jesus is going to be cut off. The Messiah is going to be cut off, not for himself, but for the people. What happens to Jesus? He's cut off. He's crucified, not for himself, for his people. Jesus is crucified, and it says in Luke, Jesus is prophesying, and he's talking about Israel. He says, man, because you guys missed the time of my visitation, I'm going to read the verse, but it's up there. You missed the time of my visitation. You're going to be destroyed. What happens in 70 AD? The Jerusalem is crumbled and destroyed by the Roman Empire. So you have... 69 years prophesied, complete, literal translation, interpreted, completed, finalized. And what's about, what about that last week? Remember, this is the prophecy of Israel, the nation of Israel. Remember what we studied Roman, Romans? Romans 9, 10, and 11. Roman, it seemed like forever ago, but it was months ago. Romans 9, 10, 11, 9 was God chose Israel as their divine election, that he elected them, he chose them to be the coming, uh, to bring the, the, the covenants, the promises, the Messiah. Chapter 10 of Romans, the Israel rejected him. He rejected, the, the, he rejected the, their, their, their own cornerstone. They rejected their own Messiah. But what happens in chapter 11 of Romans? This is what Paul says. For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of the mysteries lest you should be wise in your own opinion. The blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. That's a key phrase. Until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come out of Zion and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them. When I took away their sins concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. Concerning the elect, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gift and the calling of God are irrevocable. For as you were once disobedient to God, you have now obtained mercy through their disobedience. Even so, these have not also have now been disobedient, that they, through the mercy shown to you, they also may have obtained mercy. For God has committed them to all disobedience, that he might have, all, have mercy on them all. Listen to this, guys. Here's what God has done. God is not done with the people of Israel. God has taken Israel. They were the blessing nation, the, the elect nation, to bring the Messiah to the people. They rejected their Messiah, and the God took them, and he hardened their hearts in chapter 10 of Romans. He put them on a shelf, per se. He said, okay, I'm not done with you, but I'm temporarily hardening you to put you here. Israel's now just resting. God's like, okay, I got a plan for you. I still got a week for you, but you're going to sit here. Now's the time because of your rejection. I'm going to take the, the wild olive branches, these wicked weeds out here that were disobedient. And because of your disobedience, they're going to be blessed through my mercy that they're going to be grafted and rooted into the olive tree. That we are, guys, and here's the ignorance, I mean, not ignorance, arrogance of the church today. And Paul, Paul warns against this. That we think that we are somehow spiritual Israel. That there's no difference. 
That we're this, this, we're this blessed church that Israel's done, this wicked nation that rejected their Messiah. Now it's the church's turn. We are the mighty nation, the mighty church. Guys, you're arrogant. And Paul says, do not think that God who uprooted his own plant from the natural branch, cut him off, cannot not do that to an unnatural wild olive tree. Meaning you are this wild weed and God's saying, I'll put you here. How much easier can God take a wild weed and throw you off? There's a difference. God's beloved people of Israel, the nation of Israel. Now, I'm not saying that there's a difference in salvation. But what I'm saying is God has a part to play for the nation of Israel. And there's a part to play for the church. And what happens the day, the end of the, the age of the Gentiles, when the Gentiles are, Gentiles are fulfilled, what takes place is the church is raptured. I said raptured. Some of you are like, does he believe in the rapture? I'm, I'm getting there. Okay, my theology. Y'all know me. I always say pray for pre, prepare for post. I still say that. But the more I study this and the more I see the eschatology and the more I see the whole big picture of God and I start seeing these verses, I believe that there's a purpose for the church. And the purpose for the church is to go out into all the world. And when the bride of Christ is done, God is going to take his bride out. And then all of a sudden, what takes place when the fulfillment of the Gentiles takes place is that God takes Israel off the shelf and he puts them back. He got one more week of prophecy. One more week of prophecy, and in that week of prophecy, we're going to see a revival. This is known as Jacob's trouble in Jeremiah. This is known as the seven-year tribulation in Revelation. And during this, this is going to be the biggest revival ever seen. 144,000 Jewish believers are going to come to faith. There's going to be two witnesses that are declaring the name of Jesus. The so many of the nation of Israel are going to come to Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus the Messiah. They're going to come back to their Messiah. 144,000, a revival like never seen before. It's Israel. Israel's time again. They get seven more years of this prophecy, seven more years of eschatology. God's not done with the nation of Israel. That's their story. Next week, we're going to learn our story. And that's what Daniel actually says. He talks about this coming king, this coming one, that he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week, but in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice. Now, who's the he? This is talking about the Antichrist. Now, here's the interesting thing. If you just read Daniel chapter 9, it seems to just flow without transition, right? Like it's like 69 weeks, and then there's the last week. Why is that? Because the church is the mystery not made known to the prophets. Because this is not a promise to the church. This is not a prophecy to the church. This is a prophecy to the nation of Israel. And so when Jesus came, the, after 69 weeks, the prophecy, the 69 weeks put a stop, and then the church age came, and then the, the last week of the prophecy is revealed. And so it seems to flow because it's one prophecy for one nation with a blimp in the middle of the church, period, church time, the church age. Make sense? This is Israel's prophecy. This is not the church's. But there's going to be an antichrist who's going to come and make a peace treaty with Jerusalem the nation of Israel, for three and a half years, and he's going to break it. And then all hell breaks loose. Seven years of tribulation, seven years of the Antichrist reign, seven years of the one world government. Oh, man, I want to get him preaching on, tribu on, tri on, the, on the rapture, but okay, that's next week. Whew, okay, uh, man, I've been, uh, okay. But here's the thing, here's what I, this is where we're going to come to an end. Okay, so I don't want us to leave with a bunch of factoids and say that's cool. 
Because when I, was, when I was reading this and studying this and when I was just planning out this, this sermon series, the biggest thing that I walked away with, I can trust the word of God. And I can trust the word of God literally. Here's one of my biggest fears with the modern church. My biggest fears with the modern church is that we have become a church of eisegesis. That we... We use the Bible as a pretext to create whatever view of Jesus we want. That everyone in this room probably has a different view of Jesus, and it's all based off of their life experience, the way that they want to see Jesus in Scripture, the verses that they gravitate towards, and we all have a different view. And there's nothing wrong with holding on to certain sides of Jesus, but as long as they're biblical aspects of Jesus. But I think we have walked away from any biblical aspect of Jesus in many parts of the country and many parts of the church. The Word of God is we've, we've heard sermons so long that have brushed away and desensitized many verses that the, if, the, if the literal sense makes sense, seek no other sense. And so we get to certain verses, and because we've heard sermons on them, we've heard messages on them, when Jesus says, if you deny me before man, I will deny you before my Father. And we've heard so many verses on that verse, so many sermons on that verse, and it says, well, well Jesus is a really, Jesus understands that you are a coward, okay? He understands that we are, we are human, and we're, we're, we, don't, we don't want to be labeled a Jesus freak and go out and tell people about Jesus. We, he understands that we have, we have fear in our hearts. So he didn't really mean that if you deny me before man, that I'll deny you. He didn't really mean that. That's what it says. So is the, is the, does the literal translation make sense? If it makes sense, then seek no other sense. Jesus says, if you put your hand to the plow and head for me, and you look back to your old way of life and want your world, he says, if you are in love with the world, you are an enemy of me. He literally says, if you love the world, you are an enemy of me. But, but then we hear sermons, or we, in our own mind, we don't want to believe that, so we dumb it down, and I said, Jesus, you know, Jesus didn't really mean that you can't be an enemy of this world. He just really meant you kind of like it less. You just got to like the world a little less than you like me. You know, you got to like me a little, just a little bit more. When Jesus says in Revelation, he says, man, I, the, for those who are lukewarm, who are just kind of going along with their life and living however they want, and, and just kind of, I claim Jesus, but I'm just going to stay in my comfort zone, love the world, get engaged in the world. I'm self-dependent, independent, not relying on Jesus whatsoever. I'm lukewarm, that I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. And we look at that and say, whoa, whoa, whoa. does it really mean spit? Or what's the Greek word for spit? Is it, oh, you know, what is the, what is the, is it hawking? What is the Greek Jesus says, I'm going to spit you out of him. I don't know what to tell you. He said, I'm going to spit you. I can't find some loophole in that. When Jesus says, it is hard for the rich to enter into the kingdom of heaven, it's easier to take a camel and throw it to an eye of a needle. And we look at that and say, well, how big's the needle? I mean, like in the Greek, the needle is not really a needle. It's like a door, right? It's like a bigger, it's a bigger, I've heard this. It's like a door. And so you, you could squeeze a camel through a door, right? He said, look, man, you're dependent on your own wealth, your own riches. And it's hard when you're rich to find dependence because at any second, if I call you out of your, your wealth or call you to give up something, it is hard for the rich who depend on their wealth to not go after me, who find me as a treasure because they have all the treasure in the world. Why would they want this riches? It's hard. That's why Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus was a wee little man up on a tree, sycamore tree. He saw Jesus, wealthy man, said, I'm giving it all to Jesus. And it's hard when you're rich to do that. But Jesus says it, and we say, well, does it really mean? 
Jesus says, if you love me, you'll obey me. Does he really mean obey? Is it really obey? Literally obey? Or is it just kind of try? Give my best effort. Just try. You know, I get a couple sins a week. Like I, We all get little vouchers for sins a week, right? Sin voucher. I give them out every week. You get three. If you're new, you get four. So, my biggest fear is that we have eisegeted the, the, the Bible so, um, so much, and we've heard sermons so much, that when we get to a verse as simple as some of the verses of the scriptures that Jesus literally says that, guys, listen to me. I'm going to say this as gentle, as soft, and as powerful as I can because it is the gospel. Jesus says, I am literally the only way, truth, and life. Not Muhammad, not Brigham Young, not Joseph Smith, not Charles Taze Russells, not, uh, not the, anything else, not your works, not your efforts. I am the way of truth and life. It's only through me. He literally said that. And he also said, if you do not, if you are, he says, if you do not take care of those who do not follow me, those who do not love me, those who are not in relationship with me, you cannot get to the Father. You literally cannot get to the Father. He literally said that if you come, many are going to come knocking and knocking and knocking. And he's going to say, I am going to turn away from you. And say, get away from you, evildoers, you practices of lawlessness. I never knew you. If you do not have a relationship with Jesus Christ, then you cannot get to the Father. He says, literally, you will spend a literal eternity in a literal hell, in a literal torment for eternity. Literally. It's not spiritualized. It's not metaphorical. But he says in the Greek, the word Gehenna, and that's like a trash dump, right? No, shut up. But he also says this. He says, for those who want to put your trust in me, those who are done living their life for themselves, those who are done being their own Lord, their own master, their own desires, their own way, living for this world, who say, I want to literally confess that Jesus is Lord with your mouth and literally believe in your heart that I have resurrected from the grave. If I become your Lord and you do that, then you are literally saved from that you're saved from that that I literally take you and take you out of your sin and death and I place you not by your works not by your awesomeness not by your good looks not by your intuition I place you in my grace I remove you from your death into life into righteousness I close you into in the righteousness of Jesus Christ literally you stand there literally your position changes from from enemy of God to child of God literally you go from being eternally punished and wicked and guilty of all sins to being washed clean not by your effort not by your works but by the blood of Jesus Christ and literally you become a person, a child of the kingdom of God that will spend a literal eternity with him. He means it. He says it. And we can come to the Bible and say, did Jesus really mean that? Or was he kidding? And a lot of times the way that we live our lives and the way that we interpret some of these verses, we live as if, well, we think Jesus is kidding. God has proven himself time and time again through prophecy, through promise, through fulfillment, that he means what he says. So my prayer for this church, um, my prayer for the church at large, is that we become a people who trust the word of God. We wake up 
we get back on mission, we, we repent of being lukewarm, or we come to faith right now, today, lay our lives down for the sake of Jesus Christ. I have talked to so many people lately who have been Christians for a long time, and it seems like now Jesus is doing a work in their heart. They have been transformed and renewed because something shook, something has shaken, something has stirred up, something is the Holy Spirit is moving. And so maybe that is today, where today is the day you've been doing this for so long, or today you have not ever done this. And I will tell you, I will bank my life on it. And I'm going to bank my eternal soul on this. That everything that Jesus has said will come to pass. It will come to pass. And I believe we are at the ankles of the statue. I believe that we are in the birthing pains, as Jesus describes, of the tribulation. I believe that the church is going to be raptured, and I believe that many people in the church will not be. Because they came, and they came, and they came, and they never really fully surrendered their lives to Christ. So I'm going to warn you, because I promised God that I would warn his people. Uh, I don't want to keep preaching, man. I, I got some things I'll say. But I, I promised God that I would do this. I'll, long story short. With every dying breath I have, it's, I, will, I will proclaim that he's coming back because of what God has revealed to me and what God is doing in my life. He's coming back. Amen. He's coming back soon. So let's pray. Father, thank you. Jesus, thank you. Father, I pray for everyone in this room, everybody listening at home, everybody who will hear this message eventually. Father, I pray for a, a mighty awakening where the church has been in slumber for so long, where we've walked in lukewarm Christianity for so long, where we've been distracted by so much for so long. Father, today is the day that we as a church, we put away childish things, we put away the world, and we, we pick up our torch we pick up our mantle as Paul says and run the race as to win we box not as boxing the air but we box as to win we train as to win we live as to one day know we will see you in heaven and receive the reward that you have promised us Father I pray for those in this room that may not believe you or know you Father, I pray as your word says that you remove the scales from their eyes, that they see clearly the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Holy Spirit, we know it is of you and your work and your actions. Father, we pray, Holy Spirit, just bring to the heart and the mind conviction and clarity that you are Lord and you are King. There's no other truth. There's no other way. This is it. Your promises are true. There's faithfulness, Lord, in you, that we have hope in you. 
that in a world of hopelessness, in a world of chasing after our own tail, in the world of chasing after desire, after desire that has always fallen on empty ground, that it's a broken cistern that we keep pouring our hopes and dreams into that just keeps flooding out and it leaves us desolate, it leaves us hopeless, it leaves us confused, it leaves us broken. Father, I pray that you get rid of the broken cistern, reveal the weakness of our ideologies, reveal the weakness of our world's views, reveal the the wickedness of our beliefs and our sins. And Lord, I pray that you take that broken cistern and replace it with a cistern of strength, of gold, of iron, that we can pour, that we can hold the Holy Spirit and find hope, joy, and strength, and peace, and life. This morning, I pray that you remove that broken cistern in many people. love you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for the sacrifice on the cross. Thank you, Jesus, for your life, for your love, for your death, and for your resurrection. God, we just ask all of this in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen.